got to go do it. Lean into the unknown. We have this term, especially when I work with football players, that contact adaptation. There's a reason they had training camp prior to the season. It's not just, you know, so they can squeeze in extra games. It's so that they can get used to hitting one another and what have you. And that actually can decrease the risk of injury. Well, none of these coaches now have contact adaptation. They don't expose themselves to anything, which leads to a, a higher likelihood of breakdown. The dose makes the poison. You're all leaders in different contexts, but you're not leading if you if you don't actually lead anybody and nobody can find you. You don't have to coach world beaters. You don't have to coach all day, every day for 60 years. That kind of experience can be just as toxic as no experience at all. But you do have to lead somebody. You do have to create something. The core lesson there is you have to do. You can't just ideate and be like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a leader. That doesn't work. <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Brett Bartholomew. Brett is one of the top strength and conditioning coaches in the world. He's worked with a diverse range of athletes across 23 sports at all levels, ranging from youth to Olympians. He's the author of the best-selling book, Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, which, as a disclaimer, I helped him edit. Through his company, Art of Coaching, he also works with members of the United States Special Forces, Fortune 500 companies, nonprofit organizations, and universities to help develop more effective leaders and improve interactions and communication. This is mostly a conversation about coaching, not the technical aspects of strength and conditioning for runners necessarily, though we do touch on that a little bit at the end, but more about the interpersonal side of the craft the importance of relationships, building buy-in, developing trust, and communicating well. Brett also told me his story about being hospitalized for disordered eating at the age of 15 and how that experience led him down the path of wanting to learn how to communicate with people more effectively and ultimately become a coach. We also talked about putting pressure on yourself, navigating chaos, managing different personalities and emotions, learning to be adaptable, and a lot more. There is no sponsor for this week's episode, but if you'd like to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support, where for as little as a buck a week, you can help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is my Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, the occasional emergency pod, and other perks that pop up from time to time. That's themorningshakeout.com slash support. All right, let's dive right into this one with the coach's coach, Brett Bartholomew. All right, Brett Bartholomew, I'm really fired up for this one. I don't know how many people listening to this really know who you are, but you've got an incredible story and so much great knowledge and experience to share, and I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. No, thanks for having me, Mario. Appreciate it. Here's where I want to jump into this one. What is the biggest challenge that you're facing in your life right now? The biggest challenge I'm facing right now is selling a small percentage of the coaching population on the fact that when it comes to communication, they're not as good as they think they are. You know, we uh, a, a big part of my work, both as a coach and as a researcher and as a business owner now is focused around psychology, social science, and legitimizing the art of coaching for the science that it is. And it's amazing how many people think communication comes down with what you read in uh, fluffy leadership books, right? Or is something that they get better at simply by job experience, life experience, or just a non-reflective practice where they're never evaluated. What are the specific challenges that you have 
come into contact with as you've tried to to do this? Has there been resistance from coaches? Has there been a lack of understanding from people who are seeing this sort of stuff? I'd love to get some intel on that. Yeah, definitely decreased over the years. I mean, what we found is, you know, my, my initial audience was my base, right, of strength and conditioning, human performance. And we had a simple argument that at the end of the day, we could all follow the same programs, training strategies, what have you. But the one that's coached more effectively uh, is always going to get the best results because at the end of the day, buy-in, trust, being able to connect with somebody is is always going to generate higher level engagement, when you have higher level engagement, you have more commitment. When you have more commitment, more consistency, and so on and so forth. So, you know, when I had written my book on this topic, organizations, bigger organizations like Facebook and Microsoft saw the value in it. But there are a lot of strength coaches that still kind of wanted to obsess about sets and reps, right? They wanted to get into the weeds and, you know, it became very uh, a false dichotomy of, oh, well, you're talking about the art of coaching now. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is the tactical side doesn't matter. And I said, well, no. But the research shows that about 96% of what's out there education-wise for coaches and coach development is technical. And, you know, less than 6% is anything specific to the art of coaching. And so when you tell people who are self-identified, right, as many strength coaches and performance coaches are with a certain activity, that there's other stuff out there they have to learn. And it's stuff that they may think they're already good at. It turns out they tend to get kind of defensive. So... Uh, over the past four years, it's definitely decreased, but that was some of the initial resistance and inertia we faced. It's interesting to hear you say that because I see the same sort of thing in my domain, which is running, and I'm sure it exists in a lot of other sports as well. You have coaches who have been in place for a while, but certainly aspiring coaches, and they want to know the X's and O's of whatever field that they're in and they obsess about that. Should I get this degree? Do I need this certification? Um, you know, should I do a 12 week plan? Should I do a 16 week plan? What are the lengths of like my microcycles and, and all of that? And the part that you just described often gets neglected and forgotten about. And I, I'm just always like mystified by that because I always see, I've always seen coaching as a relationship. Yeah. I mean, to your point, we've done a lot of work on this of trying to figure out where that dissonance occurs. And a lot of it comes from the idea that communication is kind of a nebulous topic for a lot of people. You know, they think, well, what does that mean to be a good communicator? Do I have flawless speech? No, no verbal disfluencies. Am I able to kind of be charismatic and, and what have you? And really, that's not how you measure effective communication. You measure effective communication in terms of outcomes related to is there an increased efficiency in the work being done, right? Is there more understanding and shared leadership amongst things? Is there fewer conflicts? I mean, there's tremendous stuff about role ambiguity and issues with coaches and players and how that manifests. And when you when you look at less stress, more efficiency, and ultimately more career success, I mean, there's a bevy of research out there that says, all things being equal, stronger communicators are always going to get into higher level positions because that interrelational side is huge. And I think the other thing that kind of really struck me as odd is people thinking it was a soft skill when in reality, there's more research on communication, psychology, and interpersonal skills than there is on anything training related. Now, that doesn't mean, again, we're not going into a false dichotomy of what's more important, but it's just, I don't think we've really understood that there's a science to the art of coaching and that in a nutshell, is our main mission. What do you think has stood in the way of that understanding or people gaining that understanding? Ego, right? Ego. And again, I I think the combination of things that I said prior, there's ego, there's people thinking, one, what is communication? How do I make sense of it? Not understanding that, you know, 
the research will talk about how nobody we don't have a fully agreed upon definition of coaching in the literature. What we do have is an agreement that coaching is a social activity between people that benefits from interpersonal skills, right? And more specifically in nerd terms, they call it a complex goal-oriented strategic enterprise. And that means that just as we've got to look at information related to whether it's the, the programs we're following to, to improve our times, our performance, our, our anything, our strength levels, there is just, just as much of a strategy backed in science in the messages we send, how we send them, and then also the nuances of, of crafting those messages so that people are more likely to engage and learn. So I just think it's been overly simplified, but I, I would urge anybody listening to think about most, most wars that have occurred have occurred because of interpersonal conflict. Marriages end because of interpersonal conflict. A, a business could tweet out something or a CEO could say something erroneous on the air and their stock could fall a few percentage points, which cost people tens of, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think people just don't understand that the majority of conflicts we face are social in nature and we need to reinforce that. It's interesting to hear you say that because it reminds me of the advice that my Nana gave me right before my wife, Christine, and I were getting married. And she said, make sure that you're always talking to one another. And that was really simple but profound advice. And I found the times that we've been able to do that consistently, no matter how hard the problem that we're trying to solve or how difficult the situation that we're trying to navigate, we've been able to get through the other side or at least learn something from it and be able to, to move forward. And I see that in a lot of other relationships. I see it with coaches who kind of come down from on high. They don't want to communicate. They just want to tell the athlete what to do. Um, and because of that lack of communication, at some point, it's going to you know, it's going to snap and they're going to run into trouble. And it's like such a, it's such a fundamental thing, but it's often overlooked. Well, and that, as are most things, right? So our diet and exercise and sleep and everything else, the, the simple things done savagely well are the things that we don't do. And I think there's also this nuance. Here's, if I'm being honest, when it comes to building buy-in, and I view buy-in and trust as synonymous, I think there's some people that don't like the term buy-in, but the reality is it's, it's a colloquialism. We use it. Everybody knows what buy-in means, right? But I think the other thing that has kind of stood in the way of people not always embracing communication is these wishy-washy, rah-rah, leadership books, positivity. And if there's somebody listening, listen, I'm not saying that those books don't have value, but I am saying that one-size-fits-all leadership is for nobody, right? We've kind of created this uh, group of individuals in leadership culture that, you know, everybody's broken. We've got to fix them. It's Dr. Phil, sit on the couch and it's devoid of context, right? There are all kinds of successful leaders who do things that some people think are good, some others think they're bad, they dabble in the gray area. We are very much for the gray area, right? Like I'm a new parent, uh, my son's nine months old. Parenting is a great example of leadership in the gray area. Who is to say what is the best parenting strategy? That depends on the kid, the family, the cultural values or what have you. So. Our argument is, hey, we want to teach you more about power dynamics, building buy-in, influence, persuasion, the ethical use of these things. But ultimately, we want to teach you that the quote-unquote right way to coach and lead ultimately depends on the outcome and the, the, the context that you're a part of. So if we could make headway in getting rid of these pop science books where it's like, again, we are the world, everybody just be positive and everything will get figured out, I think that would go a long way, but we've got to shake that stigma for that to occur. 
I want to get into your personal story here in a bit, but while we're on the topic, you've spent several years as a top-level strength and conditioning coach. You've worked with elite athletes across a wide range of sports, but as you mentioned, about four years ago, you started shifting toward being like the coach's coach, and you have been really like beating this communication drum in several different ways since then. What led to that shift for you? Well, it goes hand in hand with my personal story. You know, I, I was a competitive athlete growing up and I basically, you know, a lot of my friends had turned to drugs in high school and I don't mean recreational drugs, anything like that. I'm talking cocaine, uh, meth, things like that. Obviously stuff that I didn't really, you know, identify with or want to do around that same time, my parents were getting a divorce. So here I am 15 years old, hyper competitive sport-based high school, and to channel kind of what I was feeling at the time, which was a combination of loneliness, anxiety, and just, you know, confusion, I trained obsessively and I didn't know a thing. You know, you're 15, so you're reading whatever is out there on the magazines and what have you. And you're following the diet advice of, you know, whoever looks ripped, which at that time it was like when low carb and low fat were intersecting. So I did both. So to kind of deal with what really was probably a mild form of depression, you know, I just trained obsessively and not knowing what to do. And there was one day where I had blacked out in the middle of training. I mean, and I woke up in a doctor's office and they basically relayed the information that my heart, kidney, and liver were at danger of, of failure in various ways. And I was put in an inpatient eating disorder hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, now I'm, I'm shortening this a bit because I don't want to put your audience to sleep. But, you know, throughout, I, I spent a year in that hospital and to give everybody an idea, you know, you are you're on this eighth floor, you basically have no rights, you're a minor, you can't exercise because even fidgeting, they will accuse you of trying to basically subconsciously or consciously get, get rid of calories. Your every bowel movement is measured and managed, blood's drawn every day, you're weighed in a gown, you sit in this room where you basically can watch PG movies, you know, like it, it, it was essentially a prison. And what was interesting is they surrounded you around subject matter experts, psychologists, psychiatrists, nurses, doctors, dietitians, all these people that were supposed to be incredibly intelligent and they were in their domain, but they applied this one size fits all model to, to the patients, right? They put us all in a bucket and I wanted to talk about things I was going through in my life with not understanding kind of how to deal with the divorce and my parents and my friends getting into drugs and what was really a lot of loneliness and like I said, anger. But they wanted to just say, no, 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 you have, this is your issue and more medication and more of this. And I mean, you're talking about a, a situation where people die in these hospitals. And you saw that. You saw people not get the treatment they needed because people wouldn't listen. So I remember when I had gotten out of there, there you know, I was 16 years old. I knew I wanted to do two things. I was still obsessed with sports and performance and training. So I knew I wanted to do anything that could help the human body reach its potential, Mario. But I also knew I wanted to bridge the gap on the psychological side because for me to be able to work with, you know, over 500 NFL players and, and members of the UFC and what have you, and that's not a humble brag. It's just me giving people an orientation. You're dealing with people that have agendas, motives, insecurities, all these things. And they're not impressed by your college degree. They're not impressed by the vernacular and jargon you can use. You've got to be able to reach them. So that life experience very much led me into doing what I'm doing and really then and now of helping people understand interpersonal aspects of these things. Going back to when you were 15 years old and you started training obsessively, were you a very athletic kid 
before that? Like, what were your interests? Were you into ball sports? Did you go to the gym pretty regularly and you just sort of amplified that to a crazy degree? I'd love to get into the details of it. Yeah, well, I mean, so prior to, yes, to all of those things, where I was I was probably an above-average athlete where, you know, I, I competed and I, I boxed as a Golden Gloves U.S. sanctioned boxer in college. Now, ironically, growing up and when I was hospitalized or prior to, I only played baseball and football. That was just the socialization of what you played in our family, you know, and and I was I was better than average. I probably could have gotten a scholarship at a, a lower level school, but I wouldn't have played pro, right? I was the kid at the neighborhood that you would know was solid, but it wasn't like, you know, the six four, two hundred and twenty pound fourteen year old with a mustache who's making, you know, grown men salivate and you're calling Nick Saban right now telling him you need to go there. Uh so, you know, I always had this try hard mentality. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Nebraska. And yes, I was doing stuff prior. I, I mean, I think probably at 10 or 11, don't quote me on that. You know, I picked up my dad's, you know, men's health magazine and saw my first Rocky movie and started doing pushups and sit ups every night. And that manifested itself into I, I loved lifting weights as a kid and it made me faster. It made me do all these things. So, yes, I, it just became an obsession after a while because, as we know, psychologically, when you're dealing with anxiety or a form of depression, you're just getting a tremendous amount of dopamine. You're getting a tremendous amount of positive uh, responses neurochemically through exercise. And it very much became that Christian Bale American psycho addiction. Did you have any role models at the time? Um, I mean, like I, I always look up to my parents as much as I talk about their divorce here. My parents are well-accomplished, great people. They're close friends to this day. Uh, you know, it's just divorce isn't fun for anybody, right? And it's messy when people are going through it. I think my role models, no. Did I have like a neighbor, Mr. Johnson, who put his arm around me? He was like, come here, kid. I didn't have anything like that. I looked up to athletes and, and people like that. But I was always very much, listen, even at 14, 15, even in college, I, I've always had this weird urgency that I don't think I was ever really starstruck by anybody. I've just had a lot of expectations of myself. You know, uh, my, a lot of people in my family had died early, you know, whether it was a heart attack or cancer. And so this urgency, just urgency in general was inculcated in me where I was pretty, a pretty intense kid. You know, like I, I remember seeing the movie The Hurricane with Denzel Washington and I, I couldn't have been much older than, again, mid-teens. And I saw this with my mom. And I don't know if anybody knows the story. Bob Dylan's got a song about it. Man wrongfully imprisoned. He was a world champion boxer. It was a racial thing. Wrote a book. A long story short, I got out of that theater and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What teenager thinks like that? You know, and so I just think a lot of it was a manifestation of this urgency and anxiety I've always felt of like life being short wanting to maximize potential, not knowing how to do that. So I went balls to the wall. Do you still put that intense pressure on yourself? Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm a business owner. I'm getting my doctorate, you know, and I, you know, there's a lot to, I, I'm going to be writing a second book here soon. And it's something that I didn't really want to write for another three to four years, but the social climate I think is right for it. I just think you have a tremendous responsibility to make the most of what you're given. Whether somebody believes in God, listen to this or not, you have a certain opportunity and time is not on your side and you've got to do something with that. You know, Now, do I still relax? Do I find time to unwind? Yeah, I'm getting better at it. But 100%, I put more pressure on myself than anybody else uh, because I want, to do, I want to be useful at the end of the day. Let's dig a little deeper there. How has your relationship with pressure 
evolved over the years from the time that you were that 15-year-old kid putting this intense pressure on yourself to now where you're still putting a lot of pressure on yourself as a parent, as a business owner, as a coach? That's a great question. I, I love it because the difference between me now and then is I know how to direct it. Me then turned it into exercise fuel because there's not many outputs you can do, you know, from a kid from the Midwest, you're going to play sports, you're going to hang out with friends, you're going to do whatever you do as a teenager, but how, you know, how else are you channeling that? You know, and I know there's somebody that's like, well, I know a 13 year old in Silicon Valley that invented an app. Great. That really wasn't, you know, something going on when I was a kid. Now I channel it into my work, the depth of my research, the, the other things that we explore. I mean, we, we run workshops that are largely improv based and we joke that the AOC of art of coaching stands for agents of chaos because a lot of our work is <laughs> the role of improv and leadership development. And we all know we don't live in this world that is predictable, right? Nobody goes out, nobody listening knows every conversation they're going to have over the next 24 hours and exactly how it's going to go. You don't know who's going to cut you off in traffic. You don't know if a loved one's going to be, you know, unfortunately, like, uh, you know, if, if they're going to die in the next, you know, year, two years, what have you. We're all basically given offers every day where we have to turn, and pardon the language, shit into sugar, and when you look at, again, coaching development, leadership development, I view them as synonymous. We need to have outputs that teach people how to do that. So that's where I channel it now is helping people become better leaders in the gray area and dealing with chaos. Back to your youth. As a teenager, did you have any coaches that had a profound impact on you at that point of your life? Yeah, my father. My father was my baseball coach for a very long time, you know, and he grew up without a dad. Pretty much my, my grandfather, what would have been my grandfather, passed when my dad was only 13. And my dad was a twin. And so my uncle is a, this fun-loving guy, even though they're a twin, because my dad kind of stepped into the shoes of the caretaker really early. Um, so my, you know, my father was my coach and he never was, you know, it wasn't like a Tiger Woods thing where he's like, learn how to do this at six you know, he, he had his own career. And so our lives were, we definitely, sport was a part of our life, but it wasn't obsessive. But, you know, we had two hard driving parents that grew up poor and they never put that pressure on you. I think you just absorb it. You know, my mother worked for the government for over 30 years and was a district manager for social security. My dad was a stockbroker. He made his name working in chaotic markets, right? If there's one thing that we know that fits the true term of complexity, it is economics and the stock market. And so, you know, you watch these people address situations in their lives. And then, you know, we just grew up in a state where, you know, when you're from Nebraska, this is a state where accountability comes kind of home and hearth with, with what it takes, right? Like look at the, whether your listeners are football people or not, growing up in the 90s at Nebraska, this was a no-nonsense style of play that represented the work ethic of the people in the state. When you're a Midwesterner, you just put your head down and you try to make yourself useful to society. And so, yeah, I, that my, my dad was definitely a role model in many ways, uh, both good and bad, as I will be for my son. I certainly don't want him to get all my traits, right? Listening to that and knowing you as I do can start to see the foundations that you've sort of built everything else upon. Chaos. <laughs> Chaos and pressure, right? Where the, it's the I'm the Joker in the Dark Knight uh, movie with Christopher Nolan. Have you always felt comfortable in those chaotic situations? 
I think so because it keeps you from wasting time. You know, when I used to have to go, I worked for an organization where we had to present a lot at workshops internationally. And so I would coach my coaching load. My athlete coaching load was really heavy January through July, and it would pick back up again in October. So in August and September, I'd get a chance to go run workshops internationally on performance training. And you get people that worked with, you know, runners, athletes of all kinds, you know, that would come, whether it's whatever was local to that sport. And, and again, coaches would come from all over. And, you know, I, I always wanted to know, you know, there would be people that would really study the slides and they'd do all this intensive prep before they'd go lead a workshop. And I always kind of tried to stay prepared. I like reading research. I'm a curious person, right? And it doesn't even have to be research. I just, and, and I think you share this, you have an in, inherent sense of wonder and you want to dig deeper into things. And so for me, I liked really putting myself in chaotic, ambiguous situations because I, I would find out a lot about myself. And I'm very self-competitive. I, I never really have competed with many other people. Like that's, that's not, even if I lost boxing, that was more an internalization of what did I do wrong rather than how did that guy beat me? And even though they go together, I think you get what I mean. So mm -hmm. I very much like chaos because I think it is a force multiplier of showing you who you are, what you're like, how you tend to respond to things and then your weak points where what's the alternative? Chasing, you know, things that are, are fairly stable and predictable all the time and and letting this false narrative go that you have things figured out, but really you've created this, you know, uh, cocoon of stability. So I just think it, chaos is is honest. I think chaos will tell the truth. I think chaos is, and it goes hand in hand with honesty, obviously. I just think that it's enlightening. So yeah, I would say that it's something that I appreciate and I like. So you thrive in these chaotic environments. Does it drive your wife or other people in your life crazy when things are always changing and in flux and you're, you know, on one minute working on this, next minute working on this, then all of a sudden you're, you're pivoting and going in another direction? Well, it's contextual, right? Like I haven't really made many pivots in my career other than I, I, whether I coached athletes specifically or now still coach athletes and work with organizations, I'm in the people business. So it's not like I was like, hey, let's start a balloon shop. No, a restaurant. No, I want to go to med school. You know, there, there hasn't been anything like that. I think that anybody in my family knows what they sign up for. You know, what my wife has to deal with is there's times at 10 o'clock at night, I get a third wind and, you know, all of a sudden I, I want to kind of talk about something that I think we could do to improve something we're working on and she's winding down. Right. So I think that you can have those kinds of things, but yep. you know, we definitely, we haven't moved. I think, you know, when it comes to, it's all contextual, I would say, if that answers your question succinctly. It does. And it's very relatable because I'm pretty similar to you in that on one hand, I can thrive on routine and predictability, but I also have a side of me that likes being in an uncertain environment, likes having my back up against the wall, likes figuring things out. And I've had to find that that balance with the other people in my life because it can drive them crazy. I do the same thing. Like sometimes at, at night, all of a sudden, some creative spark will go off and I'll start rambling on to my wife. And she's doing the same thing as yours. She's like, ready to wind down. She's like, I'm about to go to bed. I can't talk about this right, right now. Right. And I've, I've had to learn how to navigate those specific situations with different people because I realize not everyone is quite wired that way. Well, I think, I mean, here's the thing. You know, if we're supposed to fail in life, we're supposed to feel challenge, hardship, sadness, uncertainty, 
anger and the like. They represent an impetus for change, right? That's why athletes do what they do. That's why coaches do what they do. That's why, you know, somebody decides to be a brain surgeon, even though life hangs in the balance. Where we truly fail in the growth department is when we stop exposing ourselves to situations that don't cause us to confront this kind of shadow figure, right? The, The thing that lurks in the background that leads to imposter phenomenon. Leaders that operate from sterility, right? And I'm using that as kind of an expressive term to talk about safe environments. That ultimately creates more issues down the road, as does things like antibiotic resistant bacteria, right? We know right now, using hand sanitizer and things like that is the right thing to do. But we also know that, you know, there were antibiotic and, and, and different resistant forms of bacteria that were developing in 2005 that, you know, are we maybe even doing more harm? And you, you don't know. It can be a lose-lose because I'm not insinuating, mm-hmm. oh, run out and don't wear a mask. And of course, do what you're supposed to do, wear the mask, wash your hands, all that. But what I'm saying is everything's got a consequence. And I'm also saying there's also progress and imperfection. So if you were to ask me the number one area I've grown since that 15-year-old, I'd say that. I almost killed myself to be perfect right in the process of it because I, I misunderstood perfect. And there's progress in imperfection itself. There's no form of sustainability that can come from this kind of short-term self-helpy thinking of everything's positive. Confront your fake self. Chaos helps you do that. And if you don't, guess what? You're not really going to know yourself that well in the long run, and you're probably going to be on a high road for burnout. Let's continue along this line. When you were in the hospital as a 15-year-old, what were some of the biggest things that you learned about yourself while you were in there? Mm, that anger has a way of making me more focused. I mean, there was a nurse and I'll call her Jackie because that's a popular nurse. Jackie is a popular thing. But I mean, I'll just never forget how some of these people talk down to you. It was, I mean, it was literally like you were an insect. You know, I had a woman tell me literally when I walked out of that hospital that I'll be back, not congratulations, not best of luck, not we're happy you're better, but you'll be back. And I think that I had a lot of emotions at that time that when you have uh, an opportunity to sit and internalize, you start to just find a way to channel them, you know, and you try to figure out what you're really about. And I think you also, the other word that would come from it was accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to get you out of your shit in life other than yourself. That's just the truth. There's, there's no cheat sheet for it. You can read all the books that you want. At the end of the day, you're going to have to pull through your own stuff, you know, and I've spent hours trying to figure out certain people that whether it was an old girlfriend or colleagues or, you know, whatever, you try to figure somebody out and it's a two-way street. It's no different than I dealt with. I constantly get asked, well, what happens when you deal with a difficult athlete? And that was actually a big part of my calling card as a strength coach. I became known for people who, if they had an athlete in the NBA or NFL or whatever sport, and they were quote unquote difficult, they could send them to me because I like people problems. And that I've always looked at that as that should be why you want to coach or lead. I mean, how boring would leadership or coaching be if you have these automatons that didn't make your job challenging in the least and just did everything you said and, you know, why? So I think just taking accountability for your actions of it's not really other people or other situations that are difficult. You're a part of that. Uh, you know, it's a two-way street. And if you don't get off your butt and try to figure those things out, you're not going to go anywhere good. When you left that hospital, you were still in high school. Did you feel ready to face the world again? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I didn't really think about it at that point in time. I was just like, get me the hell out of here, you know, and I was ready to go back. There were a lot of kids that 
were friends prior that when I started looking really thin and sickly and kind of whatever, you know, would take pot shots and things like that. So I think I remember I was, hell yeah, I was ready to go back and kind of face that, you know, and uh, I remember there was one kid and I'm not saying this, I'm not proud of it, but it's just part of the narrative that was a really good friend prior and then became a really big shithead, you know, over the course of it. And it spread a lot of rumors. And I remember he saw me when I went back to school and was like, oh, glad you're doing well. We were worried about you, you know, got a party tonight, this, that, what have you, and you want to come. And prior, you know, when I had heard of him having parties, I remember it at one point in time, he said, we don't invite anorexics. So I repeated that back to him, wound up and cold cocked him and got suspended for two weeks. So I guess you could say, no, I wasn't ready in that. I still had some anger to work out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was... I was just kind of ready to get what you spent a year of your life on the eighth floor of a hospital in Minneapolis. There, there's better places. That's not club med, you know? Were you over the worst of your eating disorder when you left there? And the reason I asked that, I'm wondering if you regressed at all after you got out of the hospital. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause what we really found was, I mean, again, I never really had a fear of like, Oh my gosh, this pizza is going to make me fat any more different than, or any different than somebody else with, you know, uh, some other kind of disorder, whether it's alcoholism or what have you, it's not like, Oh, this booze tastes so good. You know, I just can't quit drinking booze. Um, a lot, I mean, I'm sure there's some right. N equals one and what have you. But for me, a lot of that was just, uh, perfectionism, OCD, anger and depression wrapped up in what manifested itself as an eating disorder. That was, food and exercise were things that I could control when I didn't know how to make sense of the feelings that I was having, right? So um, it just became a way that I targeted it. And especially when I went to college and I could learn more about the human body, you know, and I could learn more about the complexities of things. And just, you know, there are so many people that just don't understand. I mean, how many people have reached out to you because they know you coach and they're like, hey, can you send me a program? Can you do this? Like we have a Mm -hmm. print program button. You know, they don't understand. That's like telling a lawyer, (laughs) hey, can you... uh, Can you send me a stock template for defending myself and and murder of the first degree? You know, and so what it what it did really is it compelled me to just dive deeper into what the hell don't I know? What do I think I know? And I was just really serious and goal and and career focused once I got out of there because I didn't want anybody else to go through that. Looking back at that experience of dealing with disordered eating and learning all of these things about yourself while you're in the hospital for that year. How has it influenced the way that you coach athletes or just interact with people in general? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole book you helped with, right? 300-page manifesto on how I address that. I think the most succinct way I can say it in under a minute or less is you know, you look at what we call the three R framework, and this is super just, you know, I'm giving you a superficial view here and we can go as deep as you want. But it, it led me to thinking, how do I approach this? Well, research, relate, and reframe. You always take a seek to understand approach, the exact opposite of what the nurses and doctors did when when I was hospitalized. They very much went with this, what I see is all there is, right? You You are thin. This is an eating disorder hospital. Mm-hmm. You must have an issue with food. These are the medications you are going to take. These are the foods you're going to eat. I mean, it was ridiculous. Well, like I, mayonnaise could be a health food and I've never liked it, right? If you said mayonnaise is the cure for all things, whatever, I would maybe choke it down, but I, I hate mayonnaise. In this hospital, if you had mayonnaise on your plate and you didn't literally lick your plate clean to the point where it was almost like demeaning, that was labeled as eating disorder behavior. 
you had to eat at this big glass table, Mario, so they could see everybody's hands because you ate as a big group. And because there are some people that, you know, would try to hide food or do this or try to harm themselves and, and things like that. And I remember one time the hospital had served this pepperoni pizza and a piece of pepperoni had fallen off my plate and landed on the table. So there was grease on the table. Well, I'd eaten the pizza, eaten the pepperoni, and the nurse would come around and check. And she said there was grease on the table. So as a punitive punishment, I had to either eat another like part of a pizza or I would have been given a boost or like an insure. And if you refused any of those, you would be fed intravenously, oh, right? So like when I say the first step of how I approach things now is the opposite of them, I try to seek to understand the person and the context. And then I try to relate to them in a certain way. And that doesn't mean, hey, buddy, I've dealt with that too, right? Like right, it means right. I dive deeper, right? I, I express some level of openness so that I can continue to encourage them to kind of chat. And then reframing is after you've learned the language they speak and the things they've gone through, you need to cater and craft your message to something that's cogent with that. Not bullshit. Like just, hey, I'm not going to use jargon here. Or, hey, I'm not going to use this type of analogy, right? I can use certain analogies in America that if I'm coaching in China are completely irrelevant. And it's not even appropriate to use an analogy in many cases. So research, relate, and reframe is the framework that we kind of loosely... Uh, operate off of in in that context. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you for helping anyone listening to this better understand the origins of it. Looking ahead from your teens, as you were about to go into college, how are you thinking about your life at that point? You studied kinesiology as an undergrad. You eventually got your master's in exercise science. Were you thinking like, maybe I'll be a professor at this point? Maybe I, I will coach something someday? Like, I'd love to understand where you were in the late teen years of your life. Yeah, no, after I graduated, I actually got an internship at a place called Athletes Performance, now Exos. And so I I was, you know, I, I don't know, let's call it 2021, 20, maybe 22, and moved down to Pensacola, Florida to work as a part of this internship program. And that's where I started working with pro athletes. I got to assist with uh, major and minor league baseball players, you know, professional athletes in a wide swath of situations. You know, I had this professor in college who had worked with Paula Radcliffe and had written me a really nice letter of recommendation. And, you know, I remember I had already graduated. And so this place originally had told me no, because I knew I wanted to work with athletes. And they were like, you're not a student anymore. We can't do that, what have you. And their, their home base was Arizona. So my dad was going on a business trip in Arizona. And I said, hey, this was kind of before I, I moved down. So sorry, I'm backing up a bit. Um, and I said, I want to go talk to this place into letting me do an internship. They have a facility in Pensacola and I want to train pro athletes. And, you know, this lady had said, no, 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 a million times. She was head of HR. Eventually she acquiesced to giving me a tour and I had said something and she said, well, I'm going to introduce you to Jeff. And you could tell this woman was annoyed. So I didn't know who this Jeff guy was. Ended up being the president of the company that said, listen, We've had people send resumes, emails, what have you. We've never had anybody just kind of kick down the door and say they want to intern. There's this place down in Pensacola. You can go there. If you can get there in a week, good luck. So I drove down during Hurricane Gustav, had no idea what I was going into, and for six months worked hand-in-hand with other coaches, training professional athletes, youth athletes, high school athletes, what have you. That, and this was before my master's, then led to me wanting to get experience in the team setting. 
So being from Nebraska, I knew working at strength and conditioning for Nebraska, which is where a lot of really organized strength and conditioning from the science standpoint started, depending on who you ask. And I wanted experience running big, massive groups now. You know, so you'd run four to five groups of anywhere from 30 to 50 and beyond people. So went back to Nebraska, did uh, an internship there. At this point, that's six months of un- or 12 months of unpaid work. And that was what led me. They were like, hey, we can't bring you on. Thanks for all you did. But, you know, if you want to keep doing this, we got a guy, a GA at Southern Illinois. You can get real-time coaching experience leading college teams. And I ended up being the assistant for football men's basketball, and then I was the head strength coach for men's and women's swimming and diving, men's and women's golf, baseball, and, you know, four or five, all in all eight sports. So I was able to get experience coaching there while getting my master's in motor learning, which was focused on that research uh, um, uh, area called attentional focus. Basically, Mario, how the cues you use can impact performance. So let's say somebody's jumping, right? We're doing a simple vertical jump. The research out there shows that I can explain technically what's an internal focus. Uh, So, hey, try to touch this marker. And when you're loading up to jump, bend your knees and do this and get very technical about the positions of the body, right? An external focus is more outcome focused. So, hey, try to touch this thing, right? Same kind of intro, And when you jump, think about pushing the ground away from you. Well, pushing the ground away from you is different than saying extend the ankle, knee, and hip, right? Just like if I'm throwing a dartboard at a dartboard, I could say try to align your uh, index and pinky finger with the tip of your nose and, you know, whatever. Or I could say aim for the yellow. Well, which one, internal or external, focus of attention do you think was better in most circumstances? I'm going to say, the internal cue. External. And this is because you may think giving people information, such as what to do with their body position, right? Again, whether they're surfing or what have you, hey, bend at the knees, grip the ground with your toes, what have you. You may think giving them information helps, but a lot of times it leads to overthinking. So what they find mm-hmm. is giving people cues that are analogy or outcome focused, it, it constrains the motor system less, right? They're not overthinking it. And you're talking about research, whether it's, you know, elite athletes like Cirque du Soleil performers on balance tasks or novice athletes and and simple tasks or complex tasks. Um, And so that that only deepened my interest in communication. I'm sitting here saying, no way. Now I can actually enhance performance, not by the programs I write, but the words I say. And that was another huge impetus to go down the rabbit hole to really understand communication at an even deeper level. And so, yeah, that's aside from, you know, some other jobs and positions and and what have you, that is ultimately a lot of what set me on that path. Was that the first time that light bulb really went off for you? Or had you seen flickers of it previously? Yeah, I mean, I saw flickers of it knowing that, you know, when I got out of the hospital, obviously, I wanted to do something that was people-centered. And I had always been interested in social dynamics because I think it's, you know, hilarious the way people act in groups. And I want to know why we do the dumb things that we do. You know, I mean, we do smart people really do dumb things. And I'm included in that. Um, But, I mean, I had never seen research at this point. This was really, this was a nascent space. This was novel research, this attentional focus stuff. And so, yeah, that was the first time that light bulb went out because there was nobody really doing that. The woman, the woman that spearheaded it was a researcher named Gabrielle Wolf. But 
I just thought, all right, if the way we communicate in this context can make that big of a difference, what else can it do? And I remember just asking athletes, I said, why do you guys come to me? This was my, I don't know, 12th year as a strength coach. And I wasn't getting the feedback I wanted at work. You know, I, I just, meaning nobody, nobody really gave, there was no growth taking place. Everybody just gave safe answers. You're trying to grow. You're trying to take the next step in your career. And so I had kind of asked this group of 30 some odd athletes, what do you, what do you even come to me for? And after prodding them again and again and again, eventually one of them just, and he was pissed, and he was Don Terry Poe, worked for, or played for the Kansas City Chiefs. He's played for the Panthers. Now, you know, he plays for the Texans, what have you. And uh, he just said, bro, it's the way you explain things. Or sorry, the Cowboys. He said, it's the way you explain things. And I remember just sitting there, because at this point, I'm trying to find something else that separates me in my career because you want a challenge. And I started dissecting, well, why do I coach the way that I do? What are the consequences of my coaching? What did I think was effective coaching and was it really and how did I evaluate that? And that led to everything else that I've been doing since. Let me flip this on you. You mentioned earlier how when you were getting into coaching, you knew that you wanted to work with pro athletes. What impact did you hope you would have on them in their career? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and you're getting at a good point. I, you know, one, when you're younger, you just want to work with pro athletes because that seems flashy, right? That seems cool. And that's the peak of performance. I mean, the power output that these guys put into the earth and, and the data that comes from them is incredible. So you kind of just want to be around elite performance and see the way this incredible machine works. I think what you don't appreciate at the time is it's much harder to coach youth athletes and high school athletes than it is pros. Right. And, and so I try to encourage people now. And, and I had done both, even, even at these jobs where my main job was coaching pro athletes, you still had to coach other groups. Right. I, I've coached adaptive athletes. I had to coach an individual with a one arm and one leg. And I started finding that that was a way you could easily build your skill set because nobody else seemed to want to take these hard cases or kids or what have you. And I'd be like, shit, I'm going to coach them all. You know, I, I just wanted to coach anywhere, anytime, under any circumstance. And I don't think that's something people do enough. I think everybody wants to work mm -hmm. with flashy. I think to this day, if you ask me why I enjoy pro athletes is I enjoy the, the interpersonal chess match. These are 30, you know, people making 30 to 50 or more million dollars a year looking at me as a 5'8 white kid from Omaha, Nebraska who can't do the things they can do, but I need to get them to do things they don't want to do. And I love that chess match for the same reason that I like teaching a, a, a young athlete how to do simple marching, bounding, skipping, hopping, even though they can't, you know, blink and breathe at the same time a lot of the times. So I think you just learn to appreciate different gears for different hills. But early on, you know, you're just kind of, you're not thinking about that stuff. You don't know what you don't know. In order to achieve that, you've got to get buy-in. And this is something I want to dig deeper into because it's right in the subtitle of your book, The Art and Science of Building Buy-in. You've got to get buy-in from these athletes. They've got to trust you. You have to trust each other when you're working towards something. How do you handle those situations where the athlete hasn't completely bought in yet? Because not everyone is just going to jump in head first right away and say, yep, I trust everything that you say. I'm just going to do it. No questions asked. 
No, and you don't want that. I mean, it goes back to kind of what I wrote about in the book. You have to understand kind of this coaching compass, for lack of a better term, of, you know, there's certain things that obviously the more you understand about people and behavior and communication and yourself and and how these all coincide, the better. But the other part of that is just patience. And that's the part you can't rush. You know, no, listen, nobody should just trust you. Do you trust everybody right off the bat? You're selling people that you may not know super well and that don't know you very well, a future result they can't see or experience yet. You're saying, hey, guy or gal, right? Inclusive term, however you identify, like put weight, put 400 pounds on your back or lift, you know, 130 kilos and let's do this continuously for six to eight weeks while you're, you know, running or while you're doing practice in your sport or what have you. And I promise you'll get better. That's not quite the same as being in the market for a new car or home, and going to take it for a test drive and being able to feel it, see it, and have something tangible, you know? And, and that's paradoxical for distance runners and, and people like that is even the weight training thing in general, right? Those are people you don't get an immediate buy-in from, mm-hmm. just like fighters. Oh, I'm going to get slow or I've got to do high repetitions. No, you don't. Strength is a reservoir that all other physical, physical qualities drink from. And if you have run, like all things being equal, the stronger runner is going to be more efficient. You know, now they've got to train other properties. And I once somebody on social media was like, well, I hate that term, all things being equal. Nothing's equal. Well, sure. What we're talking about is if there's two versions of Mario Fraioli and one is stronger pound for pound than the other, he's a more efficient machine. Now, all of a sudden, regardless of what he's doing from his, like, you know, his, his running, his, his times are going to benefit from that. It's basic physics. You know, now it's not, I, I love the extremes people take it. So they're like, time out. So you're saying that all I got to do is lift heavy as crap. I don't got to run. No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that getting stronger, which yes, does include lifting heavier weights at strategic periods, in addition to the other things you're doing, will make you a more well-rounded athlete. Um, and, and it also depends on the other things that you're managing. And I think that's paradoxical. And you're not going to convince people that don't want to be convinced you're just going to have to let it play out, you know, and you're going to have to give it time and be patient. And it's that old, the teacher appears when the student is ready kind of thing. And that's why you've got to just chill out a little bit. And, and think about in your life too, Mario, like what's something right now? And I'm asking you this question legitimately. What is something right now you know you should be doing, but you're not doing? That's a good question. I, I think one thing I know that I should be doing in general especially since we're still in the throes of this pandemic, is being more proactive about reaching out to people in my life and checking in on how they're doing it and making sure that, especially since I can't see them in person, that we're staying in touch, that we're keeping the lines of communication open because I think that's important long-term, but I also think when we get out of this, it's just going to make those relationships a lot richer. And if I'm being honest with myself, I don't think I'm doing the best job of that right now. No, and I appreciate that transparency, right? Like, uh, and I know like for me, I should be going to bed earlier and getting up earlier and I'm not because my days, you know, and I felt, um, I can often feel like a failure with this. I just don't have the kind of life right now that allows me to have this. Yep. I wake up at seven and work out and do this and do that. Like that's not, my days can't be that structured and regimented based on the roles that I play in my family and business and the fact that I'm at home, you know, and there's going to be things that come up and I manage a remote team of people that emergencies happen. Right. And so I'm in this dichotomy of like, all right, well, how do I, how do I do that? And then at the same time, our mutual friend, Brad Stolberg loves to espouse, 
you know, kind of this digital minimalism and create a di- distraction-free environment. Well, no, you can't, you can't do that if you wear a lot of hats. And then they tend to say, well, essentialism, do the one thing. All those things make for really good books, okay? But the issue is try telling Elon Musk he gets to do one, like, hey, do one thing. Choose Neuralink, Tesla, right? Or, you know, your other projects. That's just not going to happen. And I'm not comparing myself to Elon Musk. I'm saying the real world is chaotic and complex. And none of us do all the things that we need to do and want to do and should do. So don't be surprised when your athletes or your colleagues or your significant other or your kids don't do those things as well, right? They're, 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 you can't be a hypocrite. You can't say, well, they're lazy and, and blame it on a personal trait-based issue. But then when you do the same thing in a different context, say it's a situational thing. You don't get to use that fundamental attribution error there. Well, I think to your your point, and, and I'm glad you brought this up because I, I'm into this sort of stuff too, but I also realize like a lot of people, they want the blueprint. They want the schedule. Like, tell me what I should be doing at every hour of the day or tell me exactly like, you know, how I, how I should be living. Like they want to replicate exactly what's in the book. And then, and then they realize like, this is, this is impossible, but they wrote about it. So it must be possible. So I'll keep trying and they'll drive themselves crazy. And and I think it's important that, you know, these books are are great. I loved Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Um, I love Brad's Peak Performance book and Passion Paradox. I think you've got to pull little things out of that that you can apply to your life at different periods, depending on what's going on in the situation that you're trying to navigate. Yeah, it's seasonal, right? There's no balance. And Brad and I get along and and understand this. We talk about this a lot in our own, like on my podcast, we talk about it. There is no balance. What there is is a seasonal flux, right? There's a seasonal flux of things. But, you know, I would argue that if we do, let's say somebody did come out with a blueprint, right? Well, whose blueprint is it? And what context does it work? And that also just makes you very fragile, you know, like, because again, like there's going to be days where life is, life is chaos. So what happens when all of a sudden a situation comes and you can't have that blueprint anymore? We're creating dependency because people want control. People want control over things. And the more you want control over something, the less contr- the less adaptable you're going to be. Just bottom line, you need to be the most uh, the version of yourself that's most appropriate for the environment of the moment. And that includes light, light-sided traits, right? Whether that is charismatic, positive, organized, whatever, and dark-sided traits. There is a place in this world for anger, insecurity, urgency, anxiety. I, I think that we just don't understand that. We look at these things as, nope, let's whitewash it, right? Mm-hmm. Let's white, like people that exactly. are closer to self-actualization have gotten there because they found their way through dark and chaos. It doesn't mean they expelled it. We all deal with it. But I just think that like that's, again, goes to burnout culture, the more that we keep telling people and selling this false blueprint, the more we're going to find an unhappy... Uh, I mean, we do. We have a culture right now where mental health is a bit the bigger thing than it's ever been. Yet, there's never been more advice out in the world. You tell me, you know? And I think people get addicted to advice. They just read all the books and it's like, okay, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. But then they never actually put it into practice. And that's where they end up getting stuck. And I think there's so much of this stuff coming out now because people are struggling with it, but also because it sells that the average person gets gets really trapped like in this, you know, culture of just accumulating information that doesn't actually take them anywhere. You're right. And, and I know, listen, like it affects me too. I, I think I said at the beginning, if I had my way, I would, rate, I would wait to write my next book for another three to five years when, 
you know, maybe I could get stuff off my plate, go to a cabin in the woods, you know, continue to digest more and more research. And, you know, on the other end of that, I know I kind of need to act now for a variety of fact reasons why it just lines up well for certain strategic purposes. But like, I also have this thing in the back of my mind, like, yeah, but it might not be as good as you want it. There's still some areas you want to research and some things that you want to wean out. And then, I mean, I think that's where I've, uh, another area I've grown the most. I just don't know that I care. You know, like I know that the book, I'm going to put a lot of effort into it. It's going to be good. In the past, I felt like my books had to have everything I wanted to talk about. I have to fit it in. Now it's like, if something doesn't make it in the book, I'll give it in a presentation. You know what I mean? But like, I'm trying to chill out feeling like I have to have all the most, everything at my disposal, the way that I want it in the perfect circumstances. There's just a very fine line. I don't know if, does that resonate with you? You know, like, because even if you do do what you consider to be perfect work, you find out real quickly that even that didn't solve the problem you think it was going to solve. And the truth is it, it's never perfect. Like you're just never going to achieve that. But it can be a hard thing for a lot of people to accept, especially if you're kind of a type A hard charging personality. Like you always have this idea that you're going to achieve perfection. It never happens. And you've got to learn to just like celebrate little wins along the way and realize that nothing is ever a lost cause. Well, and think of, yeah, exactly. And think about being in high school right now. Think about coaching kids and youth and, or just being one. Think of the pressure, right? Like I, I feel like, if you're a college freshman now, like I was pissed when I went to college and there were people that were like, oh yeah, I have like 25 credits from high school that transferred over. And now I feel like if you're a freshman in college, you you like are already expected to have three internships, a verified Instagram account, you know, and have your career picked out or you're screwed. And of course you and I know that's not the case, but I can appreciate how some may feel like that. I mean, mm-hmm. we are obsessed in Western culture with moving life as fast as we can. And that's not to say that the opposite of that is the right way. It's It goes back to that balance uh, or seasonal kind of uh, give and take, so to speak. And, and nobody's got that answer. You just got to kind of embrace the suck, dive into what you want to get into and and eat some failures along the way and know that, you know, like if you're consistent enough, something will shake out. I think that's spot on. I think that's a great takeaway for anyone listening to this. We don't have a ton of time left. I do have a few more things that I want to hit on. One theme that's emerged from this conversation is that you have been a lifelong learner. And if anyone's listened to your podcast at the beginning of your show and in your various social media profiles, you have that right in there that you're a lifelong student. I'm curious, what do you do to keep yourself sharp these days? Uh, I create, I, I put skin in the game. You know, I think that I used to read a bunch of books and this and that, and I, I still love reading and I, but the difference is now I don't get through the books nearly as fast because I'll read and apply, read and apply where back then I'd read, highlight, underline, note, you know, note, take, what have you, but I wasn't necessarily creating something. Now, as part of Art of Coaching, we're always creating new online courses. We're always creating new podcasts. We're always creating new forms of content. And so I think inherently staying in the arena, pressure testing your, you know, what you think are solutions is the best way, you know, and Mm -hmm. and you talked about this earlier, Mario. I think that people become addicted to intaking information like, oh, I read a book a week. Okay, well, what are you doing with that? You know, there's a reason they say teaching is the highest form of learning. Now, granted, I went through a form of imposter phenomenon where I felt, I told my wife one time, I was like, I don't feel like I'm getting any better. I'm not, there's like 20 books I've bought and I haven't finished any of them, you know, but listen, I'm, I'm getting my doctorate. I'm doing courses, workshops. 
I'm, I'm having to dive into complex content. So even though it may move at a snail's pace, there's a manifestation, there's something tangible at the end of that, where I'll take that over somebody that just, you know, like an ideologue, somebody that just wants to kind of think, 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 talk, 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 but never puts any skin in the game any day. And so I'm getting more comfortable with myself and the evolution of myself, which has taken time. That's a great takeaway because I think there's a lot of people listening to this who are aspiring coaches. I get these emails and messages all the time. What books should I read to become a better coach? What classes should I enroll in? Do I need an advanced degree? Should I go to clinics? And oftentimes I'll write people back and say, you got to start coaching. Like just start coaching someone. And it doesn't yeah. mean like you're going to go out and grab an Olympian right away. Find a friend who needs some help and just work on exactly the things that you were preaching throughout this conversation, learning how to communicate with them, learning how to understand, you know, where they want to go, where they're coming from, how you're going to get them there. Yeah, there's a tactical side and you've got to know that stuff and you can teach yourself on your own in, in various ways, but you've got to go do. Like you could sit there and read every book on coaching that exists, but if you don't actually go out and like work with another person, like you're not coaching. <laughs> you're just yeah, you're no, no. intaking. Well, and that's what we're talking about, right? Like, uh, uh, like exposure. You battle chaos by leaning into the unknown. And I hear you with the books to read. We ended up making like a free PDF download on artofcoaching.com, like uh, of the 200 books and articles. Any Now we put like any strength coach, physical therapist, whatever should read, but that was just, that was my audience at the time, right? Like their books relevant to anybody. Like if you're, if you're a coach, you're inevitably interested in enhancing the performance of something. So we ended up putting that up there. I did a YouTube video on how to find the best books to read. I, I did all these things because I answered this question a million times that I wanted to make it evergreen. So I will hopefully uh, add years to your life by removing that stress. I'll send you those links. And if people if people reach out and you're like, oh my God, I got to type this again, uh, I'll send you some links and maybe that'll help. But yeah, it's just, you got to go do it. Lean into the unknown. Like we have this term, especially when I work with football players, the contact adaptation. There's a reason they had camp training camp prior to the season. It's not just, you know, so they can squeeze in extra games. It's so that they can get used to hitting one another and what have you. And that actually can decrease the risk of injury. Well, none of these coaches now have contact adaptation. They don't expose themselves to anything, which leads to a, liar, a higher likelihood of breakdown. The dose makes the poison. You're all leaders in different contexts, but you're not leading if you, if you don't actually lead anybody and nobody can find you. You don't have to coach world beaters. You don't have to coach all day, every day for 60 years. That kind of experience can be just as toxic as no experience at all. But you do have to lead somebody. You do have to create something. You the, the core lesson there is you have to do. You can't just ideate and be like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a leader. That doesn't work. Yeah, that's an important takeaway. And also keeping in mind that it's okay to make mistakes. And I think that's what holds a lot of people up because they'll read all the things, they'll take the classes, and then they expect that they'll be able to go out into the world and do it perfectly. It's like, no, you're going to mess up. And you know what? You're going to continue to mess up because that's part of the process. But if you're learning from those mistakes, then you've got more information that you can apply that you can then make better decisions further down the road. Yep, well said couple more things before we wrap on this conversation. One thing I'm really interested in is you as an entrepreneur. You started and shuttered businesses. You've explored different avenues for growth and connection within your own. You've diversified your offerings. You've even pivoted a few times. Have you always had that entrepreneurial spirit? 
Well, I think coaches are entrepreneurs. You know, when I when I work with athletes and they, if an athlete can't do a clean or they can't do a squat or they couldn't do this drill or exercise, you have you have contingencies. You have other things that they can do. And I don't look at I don't look at entrepreneurship any different. You have a core you have a core path, a core offering, and you have different ways that that offering adds value to people dependent on their context. Just like as a coach, you have different strategies dependent on their experience, training age, medical history, what have you. So I would say, yeah, I mean, because I've always enjoyed, you know, working with people and helping figure out solutions, you know, like uh, if some people think that entrepreneur, well, that I mean it in the financial context, I know, no, there was by this age, listen, all I want to do is coach an an NFL and this and that, what have you. And those opportunities came and went and they weren't the right fit for the right time. I think what I value is freedom and the opportunity to create and, and some form of autonomy and to do something that lasts. And so you know, I, I think we've just gone through different evolutions. Everything that I've done has always been related to either enhancing performance or interpersonal dynamics. And, you know, I can't predict the future, but if, if things continue to go well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'd like to continue to do that in some capacity. And I don't care what profession they, I mean, we're helping somebody. It's funny where life takes you, right? Like prior, we had worked with sporting organizations, coaches, we'd, we, we've worked with businesses, what have you, but now we're actually helping somebody run for mayor. We're helping them formulate. This guy reached out, listened to the podcast, said, hey, you know, I'm running for the mayor of our community. I want help putting together messaging ad campaigns, what have you. I know, you know, communications, your focus. Would you be a part of this? And so I wouldn't have ever thought that. But the, the core offering is like now I view as you are a coach if you lead and guide and facilitate people. I don't care what age they are. I don't care what sport they are. And, and I always do want to be a coach in some capacity. I love it. Last thing before we close this one out, I do want to get tactical for a couple of minutes here. Tactical. Sell me on strength training. Why should distance runners lift heavy things? Uh, well, you know, being stronger doesn't guarantee you'll win the race, but being weaker is a higher likelihood of you losing it. You use muscles to propel yourself. Muscles support joints. All runners are familiar with injuries. Injuries can occur to muscles and or joints. So building something's strength means you increase its resilience, its tolerance to stress. The One of the most injurious things somebody can do is repetitive stress of the same kind, <clears throat> running. And so, you know, I, I would like somebody to argue, argue against it. Intelligent strength training allows you to create more resilient, you know, uh, like I said, structures that support your skeletal frame, the very thing that takes pounding. So if you want to produce force, be more efficient, be more resistant to injury. And it doesn't mean that you will never get injured. Uh, of course, you have to do these things intelligently. You have to lift weights at different weights, at different volumes and different ways and different planes of motion, different times of year, you know, and, and uh, anything can get you injured. You know, somebody's like, well, deadlifting hurts somebody's back. I know somebody that hurt their back tying their shoe. You know, so it was the same thing I said to fighters. It doesn't guarantee you'll win the fight, but being weaker certainly increases your likelihood of losing it. Where, in your experience, you've worked in collegiate environments, you've been around different types of teams. Like, where are distance runners and distance running coaches missing the mark when it comes to strength training? I just think the holistic view of buying into there's five things really that that you know make people not want to change and one of those five things the the most preeminent amongst them is tradition right like there's always somebody that can point to the n equals one well this person didn't weight train that person didn't weight train 
great. And I'm not trying to be indelicate. I lost my grandfather to cancer. There's people that smoke and don't get cancer. There's people that, you know, spend their whole paycheck and, and actually won the lottery. There's people that do all kinds of things they shouldn't do. And they, but that, that's not a glaring endorsement of it. So I think when, when you look at this and say, well, this is the way we've always done it. And it's worked in these capacities. It's like, yeah, but what if it could be better? We also used to have horse-drawn carriages, which became gasoline-guzzling automobiles, which now are Teslas, right? Like, so I, I just find that interesting. I think people overcomplicate things. Um, I think that they overlook things. They let bias, ego, and insecurity rule their decision-making. And all those go hand-in-hand hand because they listen to gurus that overcomplicate things. They get confused, they get defensive, and then they have this aversity to it. And in that case, it really wasn't the message. It was the messenger. So this stuff doesn't need to be complicated. We have plenty of resources at brettbartholomew.net. We have like a foundations of program design. You know, I offer online training through an app called Adaptable. That's for, you know, all these things are based off sound principles, right? All these things are based off the body does certain things. It squats, it hinges, it lunges, it pushes, it pulls. If you do those things in a variety of ways and you time that up, just like a recipe with the other things you do, you're going to do just fine. You just need to find somebody that doesn't overcomplicate it. I love it. I think those are great takeaways. I need to have you back for a round two at some point. But love Brett it. Bartholomew, this was super fun for me. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for your support and the great questions, Mario. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to show your support for the show, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support The Morning Shakeout directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown with my friend and colleague Billy Yang and offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. If you're digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout. And every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Okay, that's it. I am Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.